Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, Dr. Smith will be speaking with Dr. Satish Govindaraj on his article, Postoperative Pain After Sinus Surgery, a survey. Scope It Out is made possible by support from Fiagon and Carl Storrs Endoscopy America. Hello and welcome to Scope It Out, the podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your host, Dr. Tim Smith, and today I'm very happy to be joined by Satish Govindaraj from New York. We'll be discussing his article, which is currently available online in early view and is entitled Postoperative Pain Management After Sinus Surgery, a survey of the American Rhinologic Society. Satish, welcome to the podcast. Tim, thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Yeah, sure thing. Wow, this opioid epidemic has really caught our attention, hasn't it? <laughs> I mean, I, was this Absolutely. was it on your radar? Was this on your radar screen? Did you, know, you see it coming? I, it, I guess. I have to, you know, as you always should do, acknowledge your co-authors and our lead author our first, it was one of our residents, Ming Gray. Yeah. And this is essentially an area that was really she's very passionate about. And just speaking with her is what brought this delight for me. And it opened up a whole area where I think many times in academics and in surgeons in general, we were trained at a time where you did what your mentors did. You didn't really question any of those practices. And many of the, the opioid prescribing we do related to surgery is based on what we were exposed to in our training. And this study, to me, brought to light how poorly we surveillance how much our prescriptions are being utilized. And it brought to light the fact that many times we take it for granted that maybe there's really no consequence to all this, but in reality there is. These these leftover medications can be used by not just the patient we're prescribing it to, but really anyone who has access to it. Yeah, they're usually in the medicine bottles, in medicine cabinets. Kind of everybody has a stash, more or less, or a lot, and not everybody, but a lot of people just have a stash because they're not quite sure what to do with them, and maybe I'll need them again at at some point. I mean, I know this. When I look back at my practice, especially when I was very junior in my practice, Uh I typically would have prescribed probably 30 tablets of oxycodone for standard sinus yeah. surgery. And I really didn't yeah. think about it that much. That's just what we did. And then the era came where pain became the other vital sign that we weren't measuring. And yeah. providers were almost, I hope this isn't too strong a language, but I feel like we were almost accused of not properly treating pain. And so gotcha. I think yeah, yeah. I think I increased to maybe 40 tablets at that stage. Right. And now right. I feel like the pendulum swings the other way and now I'm down to 15 tablets and I tend to use hydrocodone. And so my practice I have to admit has been all over the place but it's kind of followed this national wherever the national narrative has gone there go I. Yeah, and I agree with that. And even in the people we polled, just like any survey study, it amazes me. You think so many people are going to respond, and then your response rate ends up being somewhere in the range of 15 to 20%. But if you look, the average that you talked about, 30 pills, the average we saw of people who the number they prescribed with respect to opioid pills was 27. Yep. You know, we saw upwards of 60 
the 70 pills being prescribed for routine sinus surgery. And, you know, one issue we have is before, now with the way controlled substances are being monitored, I used to be able to call a pharmacy and say, listen, you just give them a few pills just to carry them through till I get to the office tomorrow and I'll send you a prescription. And those type of things just aren't allowed anymore. So in some ways, you overcompensate just for a practical nature, very innocently, just to avoid maybe a phone call or that patient not having enough. It's outpatient surgery. Yeah. They're, it's very difficult, at least in my hands, to predict who is going to use all of their pain medicine and who is going to use very little. And my big concern is they get to the weekend, they're yes. running out of their pain medication, they're relying on the on-call physician to sort this all out, which is never ideal. And so you think to yourself, well, I'm going to preempt this by prescribing enough so that they won't run out. There's nothing nefarious here, I I don't think at all. It's all about just trying to help the patient avoid pain. And I think there was certainly a time around 2000 or, or so where it felt like there was an insinuation that we weren't, if anything, we were not treating pain significantly enough. So I think that really has conditioned the way I treat patients for pain postoperatively. You know, I think a lot of the discussions about opioid dependence and how it's very much an active issue now is important because why, as prescribers, we're being educated that many of the opioid overdose deaths occur by prescription. And it doesn't have to be the person you prescribe that medication to, but actually anyone who may have access to that medication. So I think although it makes our lives easier to try to make sure that patient's covered, there's certain steps we can take to maybe better gauge how much pain medication this patient may need. Am I doing a draft three or is it just a primary limited FES? Although I have to say, Satish, I mean, I have to say, I have never found that correlation, Uh, meaning I think to myself, okay, I've just done a modified Lothrop. Wow, this patient's going to have more pain. Now, Adam DeCondi just published something recently that showed increased morbidity postoperatively with a Lothrop compared to other procedures, but... but numbers, yep. Yeah. But it was actually deteriorated in that study initially yeah. before getting better. Yeah. That's the interesting part about it. I mean, whether I'm doing a septoplasty and perhaps inferior turbinate reduction versus a full house fess, I can't really predict which of those patients is going to have more discomfort postoperatively, I don't feel like. Or if I'm doing a mini fess, an isolated anterior ethmoidectomy and maxillary antrostomy versus a full house, I can't predictably say that the patient who has more surgery is going to have more pain. I'm just telling you my experience. I'm curious about yours. I've been one of the people that's guilty of, it comes to my attention if they have pain, but I'm not actively checking to see how much of the medication Mm -hmm. was used, what they're doing with that medication with respect to what they're not using, how they're disposing of it. Right. This brought to light to me things I'm not providing for my patients that I need to. And now we created actually a form when I book a patient for surgery, we highlight their post-op meds. And one of the things I'm checking as far as for prescriptions to be created is for post-op medication, 
how many pills I'm going to give for each procedure. So it almost forces me to look and see, okay, I'm doing a draft. I should give such and such a number. Whereas mm-hmm. before, it was a flat number, yeah. and that's what I was trained to give in training. It makes your clinic much more efficient because you have that same prescription each right. time. But in the end, you know, it is convenient, but that little extra sheet we put in, in our booking process actually makes me take a back step and think, okay, how much do I really need to give here? Because I haven't adequately assessed, unlike Adam did, to see how much pain. Like I look at an overall SNOT-22 score, you know, when they come back. Yep. But what components related to pain, yeah. et cetera, I've been guilty of not specifically looking at that. Just a survey and a study like this makes you start to think a little bit more about how you do things, you know? Right. No, I think that's the value in this. Now, you mentioned the response rate, and I've noticed several studies have been done by survey of the membership of the society. It's usually it's an email survey. There's usually two emails that go out. All of us who are members have received these on several occasions. And it would appear across almost all of these studies, you can predict that the response rate is going to be about 11%. That's what, that's, and that's about what it was, I think, in your, your study as well. So it's not as though we're capturing the majority of folks, but your sample seems reasonably diverse from a geographic standpoint and from a practice. Yes. Yeah. So I, I, while it doesn't give us all the answers, it gave me some real insight into what folks are doing. For instance, the use of ibuprofen routinely mm-hmm. postoperatively is done by some 40% of the folks who who responded to the survey, which I found to be really interesting. That's not something that I typically do. Yeah, I would be more likely yeah. to use intravenous non-steroidal uh, anti-inflammatories like Ketorolac or something like Ketorolac. that. Let me ask you, one thing that I thought was surprising, and I was having difficulty trying to determine why that was the case, is why academic physicians were less prone to prescribe NSAIDs versus private practitioners when you have literature to say that it doesn't increase bleeding bleeding risk. You know, you'd expect academic physicians to actually say, okay, let me bring that into my armamentarium yeah. and move away from opioids. But And I don't have a good reason as to why. Is it because, you know, in an academic setting, we work with residents, we creatures of habit do the same thing? I don't right. know. But that was more often done in the, the private practice setting. Yeah, yeah that the caught my eye. Setting. That yeah. caught my eye as well, and I don't have a good hypothesis or theory uh-huh. about that either. I saw that... Folks in academic practice were all also more likely to utilize pain management services, whereas folks in private practice were more likely to use other adjunctive things like hypnosis or cognitive therapy. Yeah, yeah, which which I found to be interesting. Tell me what you think about that. For private practitioners versus academics, I thought, you know, we have better access maybe to pain management services. You know, some of us mm-hmm. still operate at hospitals, et cetera, right. work closely right. with anesthesia, whether it's just more in our mindset and our thought yeah. process, say, than someone yeah. who may not be in that setting. And if you look at alternative treatments, there's not as much evidence to it more anecdotal. Yeah. And whether sometimes we as academic folks have more tunnel vision where if there's not complete evidence to support it, then maybe we may not be as inclined to try it. But I have to tell you, many times anecdotal improvements, et cetera, 
And if we don't have a better alternative option, you know what? If it doesn't have any detriment to the patient and gives them some relief, it's fine to try some of these alternative things, even if all of the evidence may not be as strong, say, to yeah. support it, as long yeah. as you're not causing anything injurious to the patient. We use uh, acupuncture here pretty routinely in the perioperative setting for nausea and vomiting, postoperative nausea and vomiting. And I think the evidence, I've never looked at the evidence, but my anesthesia colleagues tell me it's pretty good, but it's used actually. uh, What type of cases are you using that in? Well, that would be in ambulatory settings, so not just sinus surgery, but I'm seeing really? it used in orthopedic procedures and other things as well. I think it's more for postoperative nausea and vomiting. Again, I haven't looked at that evidence myself, but my colleagues in anesthesia tell me that the evidence is pretty strong in that regard. So, yeah, I think we're in our infancy of understanding some of these alternative therapies and how they can really help us, those of us who are trained in the more Western style of medicine. Right. There's probably, we're just touching the surface and hopefully we'll learn a lot more moving forward. As I was reading your article, I saw that you referenced Adam Folby and his colleague's article, The Evidence-Based Review. It was actually published in print in International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology in July. And I found it to be a really useful article to read side-by-side with your survey. Theirs, of course, is more looking at the evidence of these various things, and yours is more what what are people actually doing out in in practice. What has, in your study of this, is anything that have surprised you more than others? I mean, things that we're not using that you now, after studying this, you say, well, gosh, I'm going to start doing this more. Well, I think the biggest surprise to me was the amount of opioid prescription numbers as far as the number of pills we prescribe for a procedure that has been well described as one that does not cause a great deal of pain. Right. You know? And even if we, you saw there was a lot of counseling verbally that went on to patients on how to handle their pain. And we tell them to take Tylenol for moderate or mild or whatever someone's instructions are, but we'll still give an opioid prescription for 60 or 70 pills, despite that. So that surprised me where we are prescribing that volume for Mm -hmm. a procedure that is known to have very small amount of pain. For example, my father had cardiac bypass surgery and was sent home with Percocet. Yeah. You know, so, you know, you see how there's some discrepancy there where a study like this should almost highlight and say, you know what, we need to rethink how we're doing things. Are we yeah. counseling patients on, you know what, can you just, you can call your local pharmacy to see do they take back extra unused pills so that way you can dispose of it in the proper way. There's not enough of those options out there, unfortunately, but if you counsel patients and educate them, maybe they can try on their own to see if they can discard of them in the appropriate way. And we can do things yeah. on our end to make sure we're giving enough but not too much. And if they yeah. call the office again because they need a little bit more, then so be it. I think you're right about having the upfront conversation with them to bring them on board and say, look, what I'm attempting to do here is give you just the right number of 
pain medication uh, tablets. And we don't want to give you more because of all the problems that these medicines can have. And I don't want to underdo it for obvious reasons. So you and I are going to have to work together going through this to make sure that your pain is controlled, but that we don't overdo it. I do think these medicines are a lot more dangerous than a lot of us give them credit. That little uh, form that we have and that we added to the booking process as far as me dictating how many pills I'm going to prescribe for this patient as far as pain, that almost, that's that's something I feel out in the room and that helps me engage with the patient, hey, how is your pain tolerance? What other surgeries have you had? How did you do after? If they had sinus surgery before, how bad was the pain? And then I'm thinking more and asking the patient rather than I leave the room, they left, and now I'm sitting down filling that form to figure out how many pills am I going to give this person. Yeah. Then it's really a waste, right, because I, I haven't really engaged them to know. This makes it more personalized and yep. not going to change the way we do things. All, but at least I think in a small way it does help you think a little bit about how much you're prescribing and maybe putting less free medication out there that can be misused. Yeah, I think it's the right way to go, and it's clearly one of these things where we're just not going to be able to check the box moving forward. We've got to actually engage the patient in the conversation and have discussions about how much we're going to give, why we're going to give that much, and how they should go about treating their pain, because maybe they won't even need the narcotics in the post-operative period. And I look at, like, survey studies or database studies as looking at issue and seeing what are the areas that we can look at a little bit deeper? And, yeah. you know, one of the things you saw, gabapentin was almost never used, yeah. you know, in that yeah. list. And there's a fair amount of literature that shows that it does give some benefit. Right. We're actually starting a trial, a randomized trial, looking at pre-op GABA with placebo. Yeah. You know, to see if we incorporate that into a patient's pre- and post-op regimen, does it translate into less opioid use in the post-op yeah. period? look at a survey study and say, where can I look deeper and do a better design study to try to actually look at this data and make something clinically and practically useful out of it? The work you're doing is great, and there are a number of hypotheses that one could derive from the survey research that you all have done, and and that can help to drive the field forward. So I congratulate you on that, and Hopefully, we'll be able to talk on the podcast sometime in the future about one of those other studies, Satish. Yeah. Before we wrap up, I really have to acknowledge, I'd be amiss if I didn't, Ming Gray, who's one of our senior residents, who's really been an initiator in a lot of these studies and has a definite interest in this area. So I think what we're going to see her do in this area, is, this is we're just scraping the surface. So, right, um, right. Well, fantastic. You tell her we all say congratulations and keep the work going. All right, Satish, well, it's great talking with you. Thanks again for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, Tim, it's a pleasure. Thank you for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of Dr. Smith and his guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or of the sponsors.